true story. Once on a plane, on a flight with uh, my three-year-old daughter, Izzy, and the safety briefing's on, and she doubles over to my side in a way that only a three-year-old can fold in half. I'm like, Izzy, what are you doing? And uh, she stayed there, and I couldn't really move. And I'm like, Izzy, would you get up? And suddenly she unfolds, and she comes back with a life jacket. And I'm like, what? put it back. What are you doing? You know, and the thing is, have you ever actually checked that your life jacket is there? And my guess is that most of us haven't because it never really occurs to us that there's actually going to be a problem with the plane. And that's fine. Unless there was. In which case, whether there's a life jacket or not would matter a lot. You know, it's the same with our faith. We are free to believe whatever we want to believe. And that's fine when you're having a coffee and you're just sort of chatting about hypothetical concepts. But it's a bit like life jackets, you know, in a safety briefing. But when it comes to life's most critical moments, what we believe really, really matters. Every single one of us is going to die one day. It could be in 100 years. It could be today. And in that moment, what we believe has to hold us. And I want to ask you today, can you have hope in that moment? Can your faith hold you in that moment? You know, this is the point we come to today. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians, this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. We're in week five of it, and this is the conclusion we come to. Sort of spoiler alert right at the outset. The Christian faith stands up even in the face of death. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to put it on the screen for you, though. Uh, We're going to read. It says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will believe, uh, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. The Thessalonians are grieving. They're grieving friends and family that have died and it has tested their belief. And Paul steps in and challenges them that what you believe must inform you in this moment. He says they're grieving like the rest of humanity that have no hope. And Paul's message is that the message of Jesus matters in this moment. So I want to work through this together. Verse 13, he says, For we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul says that what we believe has to inform how we grieve. That what we believe about Jesus brings hope when people in our lives who believe in Jesus pass away. 
But in doing so, he says something really controversial. He says, we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, this is obviously true for an atheist. They're self-professed, you know, zero hope. We're just, according to the atheist, we're just miracles of matter. We're just a product of chance. And then one day we're just going to be buried in the ground, lights out, consciousness done, fine, no hope. But Paul doesn't just say about the atheist. He says, for everyone who believes in Jesus, who does not believe in Jesus, actually has no hope. He's not saying they don't have a concept of hope. He's just saying when it really matters, they actually have no substance for that hope. You see, Paul knew that believing in Jesus wasn't some idea. It wasn't some just sort of empty empty concept. It was grounded in the historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And so he goes then into this explanation and we go to verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died, that Jesus, God's one and only son, became flesh and lived among us. He died, the, he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. But then he rose again, conquering death, proving that his death was fully a sacrifice for sin. That death no longer needs to be our master. It, it no longer has the final word. But where we're expecting Paul to go in this moment is then not just that Jesus died and rose again, but that he's coming again. But notice, Paul doesn't say that because he assumes they already know it. Paul just blasts on past that, died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, Paul gets to the crux of what the, what, what the Thessalonians are grieving. They're worried about their loved ones who have died. What happens to them now? Paul says, when Jesus comes again, God's going to bring them with him. You're going to see them again. The family we miss. The friends we grieve, the heroes of the faith that we have farewelled, we will see them again. They are not gone forever. There was a moment when I said goodbye to my granddad. He was unconscious in a hospital room and we expected it was probably his last day. And I said, granddad, if I don't see you again, I will see you in heaven. But as I read this passage, I realize I was wrong. I will see him again, but it won't be in heaven. It's when he returns with Jesus and all the saints who have died before. My granddad's coming back with Paul, with Peter, with the woman at the well and her whole village. My granddad's coming back again with Legion, the man who, out of whom God, Jesus cast 6,000 demons, a legion of demons, and the the town that the, the Legion then went and told that story to. My granddad's coming back with Mary Magdalene, with the thief on the cross, and with the Thessalonians who read this letter with the more recent heroes of the faith like C.S. Lewis and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and John Wesley and Billy Graham. They're coming again. They will live because Jesus lives. They are coming again because Jesus is coming again. What we believe matters. And it makes a difference when we're grieving those who have gone before us. And Paul goes from there, like I could stop there and we could just worship, right? I'm sort of done. But Paul then goes on to explain that moment in greater detail. And there's four things I really want to pick out for us, okay? So we're going to go to verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself 
will come down. Number one, I want you to see Jesus is coming again. I want you to imagine I call Parliament this week and I say, I'd like an appointment with the Prime Minister, please. Um, no? Like, who are you? But imagine my cause was like really, really genuine and I really, really needed a meeting. I would imagine that I still wouldn't get her, but maybe I'd get a staff member or a team member, a representative. But notice what Paul says, the Lord himself. Not a representative, not one of his team or his staff, not an envoy, the Lord himself, the one who became flesh, the one who died for us, the one who rose again, is coming again, himself, literally, physically, personally, at some point in the future. I would imagine that this was a great comfort to the Thessalonians grieving those that they'd lost and potentially people who'd been martyred. We know they were persecuted. To know this Lord that we've never met, but we've believed in, we've committed ourselves to, and it has cost some of us our lives. He himself is coming again, and we're going to see him, and we're going to see them. So Jesus is coming again. The second thing I want you to see is that... no. Back to verse 16. He's going to come down from heaven. And then notice the end of this verse. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a little challenge in this verse. The dead in Christ will rise first because the... Uh, BD, the, the keen eye ones among you will have already noticed that we've already talked about the dead rising. And so it talks about here, they, they're going to rise first, but then we get, they're also going to come with Jesus. He's like, how does that work? They're coming from two different directions. I want to take you to the thief on the cross as we go deeper, just for a moment. Jesus turns to this man on the cross who believed in him in his dying moments. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus promised him, wasn't that he was going to sleep in death. It was that he was going to be present spiritually in the presence of Jesus consciously in that. But his body didn't go anywhere. It was buried in the ground. And so there's this separation when we die. Bodies are here. And yet when we believe in Jesus spiritually, consciously in the presence of Jesus. But when the Lord returns, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. But then, but then they'll also rise. And so there's this body and spirit coming together in a moment. But it won't be any old body. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's going to be a resurrected body. It's going to be brand new. It's going to be everlasting. It's going to be a body that doesn't wear out. It's going to be a body that doesn't get tired or sick or, or even age. No more Botox or anti-aging cream, you know? This is good news for anyone with a terminal illness. This is good news for anyone with a degenerative disease. This is good news if all you've ever known is pain and suffering and your body has never really worked. But it is also good news. If, if you think, my body's fine, I'm fit and healthy, can I say you've never known a body like the one you're going to get? When Jesus returns, medical professionals retire. Surgeons, you can put down your tools. We don't need your services anymore because Jesus is coming. And he's going to raise the dead in him. Everlasting, indestructible, glorious Bodies. He's coming again. We're going to be raised and we're going to be reunited with other believers. Now I am going to take you to verse 17. 
It says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in there. So those who've died in Christ are going to be resurrected. But those who are still alive, the believers who are still alive in that moment are going to rise. They're going to, they're going to receive resurrected bodies, but they'll just sort of be translated because they've never actually died. But this verse has actually caused a lot of discussion and so many books have been written about this this little phrase here, caught up. It's the Greek word harpezo. It's where when it's translated into Latin and it comes out the other side, we get our word rapture, the rapture of the church. And as I say, so many books have been written about this. So many discussions have gone on about this. Is this the second coming? It, it, and how does this relate to the sort of tribulation that Jesus talked about? Is it the end? Is it just before the end? Is it in the middle? Is it before? Like so much has gone on. And I just want to say two real simple things to you. Notice that Paul says, we who are still alive. He's including himself in that. And I think Paul had, just had a little inkling that maybe he would still be alive when Jesus returned. And so what it means is that Paul didn't see a whole succession of events needing to happen before the Lord returned. I believe he thought the return of Jesus could be imminent. I believe today the return of Jesus is imminent. Today could be the last day we gather. This could be your last week at work. <laughs> I wonder how that reality, if we really believed it was true, would affect how we lived and reached out to those around us who don't yet know Jesus. But also I want you to see that Paul doesn't write this for discussion. He writes it for encouragement. His point is that those people you are grieving, you won't just see them from afar you're going to be raised too, and you're going to see them up close. It's going to be the biggest church service you've ever been to. And we won't need a message because Jesus will be there. And we won't need a healing ministry because we'll be re resurrected. There'll be no prayer ministry at the end. But I bet we'll worship for a long time. And we'll celebrate as we see those people again and we gather together with the Lord and here's his promise to us, the final thing I want you to see. We will meet with the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. It's not just that Jesus is going to return. It's that we're going to be in his presence from that moment on forever. Here's how Jesus talked about it in John 14. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I believe that Jesus is talking about this moment, that he's going to come for the church and take them to this place that he is preparing them for. And it's not just a moment that we will be with him, but from that moment on, we will be with him forever. If you've read any of the Bible, you'll know that there's a whole succession of events that go on as, as God brings human history to its sort of conclusion. You'll know maybe you've read some of Revelation and you're like, whoa, what is going on there? And I believe the bulk of it talks about this seven-year uh, tribulation that um, the likes of which the world has never seen nor will ever see again prophesied by Daniel, where, all, where the church is taken out of the way and all hell breaks loose and God protects Israel from destruction. 
Maybe you've read about the millennium, when God, when Jesus returns, not uh, for the church in the air, but on the earth with the church and reigns over a regathered Israel for a thousand years and, and the world experiences this like worldwide peace. Maybe you've read about the great white throne of judgment where, where the dead, the, those who don't believe in Jesus are raised and are judged. Maybe you've read about the new heavens and the new earth, this God restoring all things and bringing about the eternal state. You know, there's this succession of events and some of those things can be troubling at times, but I want you to know that in light of this passage, I believe that what Paul is saying is no matter what happens, we have this assurance that through it all, we will be in the presence of Jesus. And that, is what truly matters. He can take you through any moment. He can take you through any season. And the truth that Paul comes to is we'll be with him forever. I love the words of George Findlay. He says of this passage, the entire content and worth of heaven, the entire blessedness of life eternal is for Paul embraced in the one thought of being united with Christ, his saviour, and his Lord. We love Jesus so much. And one day we're going to tell him that face to face. The saviour of the world and the Lord of our life. And so we've seen Jesus himself will return. There is going to be a physical resurrection. There's going to be a reuniting of the church throughout his history. Meeting the Lord in the air. And we're going to be with him forever. This is our hope. And so as I close, I want you just to think about some implications. Number one, if this is true, we can face death in a very, very different way. Death becomes a doorway into the permanent presence of Jesus. We can face that moment with hope and with confidence. Second thing, if this is true, we grieve for people who've believed in Jesus in a very different way. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm just saying that this hope has to inform that hurt. Those people are in the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, they return. Because he lives, they live. And you know, moments of deep grief, and if you're going through this right now, these words can feel cliche. They can seem a bit trite, like it's the most inappropriate moment to share these words. Can I say, it's the perfect moment to share these words. In fact, it's why Paul wrote them. That are... that our hurt would be informed by the hope that we have because of Jesus. Third thing, if these words are true, there is a form of grief that is truly heartbreaking. And I know for some of you, the person you're grieving doesn't know, didn't know Jesus. And so you're reading these words and they don't comfort you. In fact, it makes your grief harder because you wonder where they are now. And you know that they died without this hope. And I don't have an answer for you other than to say, if Jesus can die for your sin, if he can rise again and come again for you, can you trust him with that grief too? And know that he's big enough to hold you in that moment. Finally, if these words are true, it means there's an urgency about the gospel. What we believe about Jesus is of internal significance. And the moment he returns, the door of salvation just closes. 
Are we praying like it really matters? Are we reaching out to the people around us like there's a, there's a time frame? Or are we just pretending that there'll always be a tomorrow? Can we be a people who share Jesus today? Because it may well matter today. Finally, can I speak to you today if you're somebody who's never come to a place of believing in Jesus? And I don't know what you believe. You could be exploring all sorts of things. But can I stretch it like the life jacket moment with a plane going down? And can I say, does what you believe give you hope in that moment? And if not, can I invite you to believe in Jesus so that today you can receive forgiveness? Today you can begin a brand new life that's lived out in a hope that when he comes again, he's coming for you. Or when you face death, you have hope that you're about to be in his presence permanently forever. So as we pray right now and as we sort of begin to lead into a time of worship where we just adore Jesus together for all that we've talked about today, can I lead you in a prayer? And you know, maybe you've believed in Jesus. Maybe you've, got, you've, you've drifted afar and you're ready to come back today. Maybe you're going to believe in Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've believed in Jesus your whole life, but it's like this moment is going to become a moment of recommitment. You know, confess your hope in Jesus and recommit to really get serious about this pursuit of following in him and helping people discover him. Should we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the hope that we can have in the face of death. Today, I declare that I believe in Jesus. Today, I declare that my sins are forgiven. Today, I declare that I am receiving eternal life. Today, I believe I am receiving the Spirit of God to, to empower me to live in a brand new way. And today, I declare that I'm going to live every single day of my life with a hope that I will be in the presence of Jesus forever. I give my life to you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us at online at thestreet.org.nz or reach out to a, a follower of Jesus that you know to help you begin that journey. Right now, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus in worship and celebrate him for what he has done and what he's going to do.